Welcome to Jepper Bites. I'm your host, Lakshlata. We're live from day 5 of CJLF 2019, and the session you're about to listen to is called Shades of Life. Thank you for coming out to listen to us on a Monday afternoon. Mr. Sibyl, as you know, is one of this country's foremost lawyers, politician, policymaker, public intellectual, and a poet. He's had a ringside view of the greatest democracy in action for decades. And that puts him in a unique position to be able to deconstruct some of the most complex, confusing, and troubling aspects of the times that we live in. He has recently written a book that analyzes and critiques the Modi government's tenure, as well as the UPA governments that he was a part of. And I highly recommend that you buy the book and read it. And I'm not just saying it because he's sitting here on stage with me. I'm saying this because in the times we live in, we are inundated with high-pitched, vacuous political rhetoric. And at such a time, to have a book that focuses its attention on policy and backs its claims up with solid facts is a rare pleasure. These shades of truth are more than welcome and in an increasingly post-truth world. Mr. Sibyl, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for, being, for having me here today. I was also, uh, I was rather intrigued when I first came across your book by the title of the book and I was wondering if it's also a sort of subtle hint at the fact that a politician can never write an entirely honest book as long as he's a politician, particularly when elections are so close. Well, you know, I, I, what's been happening in the last four and a half years is that, you know, lots of politicians and um, lots of people in the media come out and make outlandish statements. And I thought the time had come to actually look at the last four and a half years, not in the context of who said what, but what's the data on the ground? What if, you know, in what area, what has been done backed with data? And in, it's really a reference book, apart from the fact that we talk about, I talk about policy and I talk about the fault lines when we were in power. I also talk about that. And I talk about the last four and a half years and where we started um, and where we are. And you do a fairly substantial takedown of the Modi government. Yes. And I say substantial because of the facts and the data that you back it up with, like you said. And the list is uh, unfortunately too long for us to be able to delve into in 45 minutes or even 45 hours. But when one reads your book, one can sort of roughly break the failures of the, or the critique rather, of the government, uh, Modi government, into two broad categories. Failures that are endangering our democracy yes. and democratic traditions and institutions and policy failures. If I had to, and this is not fair to you, but I'm still going to do this, I'm going to ask you to pick three things under each category and tell us, you know, three key 
failures in each category and tell us a little bit about it briefly. Well, you know, quite frankly, the, the, the policy announcement, announcements of this government in terms of the context of, of having failed on those announcements, I think the prime example is demonetization. I don't think that there can be a better example of policy prescription and utter failure. Then you have a GST, which also was, uh, I think, a right policy prescription, but, uh, but the architecture of which was not quite right. And uh, the third policy failure, I think, is uh, all these announcements that are made, which are great, and I think they are very attractive, but actually when you go on the ground, uh, they're not being implemented. So there's an implementation failure on the one hand, and there is a policy failure on the other hand. And demonetization was, in fact, an absolute disaster. And I tell you, and I ask this audience, uh, do you know of anybody in this country, any rich person in this country, who told you that he couldn't exchange his money? And I bet there is not one single person who couldn't exchange his money. What does that tell you? That tells you that there, is, there was a conspiracy out there between the guy who had cash in his house, the banker who was ready to exchange it, and the go-between who was actually the agent. You can imagine who the agent would be. And the agent would get a cut from it, the minimum of which is 15%. So quite frankly, it's the biggest scam in the history of India where the person who was the agent made a lot of money. And if I were to have declared that income in cash, I would have had to pay 33% tax. So if I get 70% back in white I'm quite happy with it because I would have had to pay 33% tax anyway. So in between, I give 15% to the, to the agent and 15% to the banker. And that's, that's, what, that's, what, that's what it all was. Nothing to do with uh, black money, nothing to do with all this cash came back into the system and was converted into white. And the government said, we're going to go after these guys. Nobody has been gone after because they are their own people. And you can imagine political parties who must have had a lot of cash, they must have exchanged it as well and paid a lot of percentages to the agents. So that's one. The GST was a good idea, but I think that it was flawed for the simple reason that you, you must understand, say, in Chandni Chok, if I go to a cloth merchant, what does the cloth merchant do? He doesn't pay any GST on it. Now, if he has to buy that, he has to pay GST on it. And if he has to give it back, he has to pay another GST on it. So on the ground, it doesn't work. And 800 million people in this country live in less than 10,000 rupees a month. 10,000 rupees a month. 800 million people, imagine. It's the population of the United States and Europe put together. One less than 10,000. What are they going to do with GST? They have no transactions. So it's, it, and then you have multiple rates. You go to a restaurant which is air-conditioned, you pay one rate. You go to a restaurant of the same food, non-air-conditioned, you pay another rate. How do you decide? The same thing with hotels. The same thing with, uh, with the transportation. So this is an absolute disaster. As far as the schemes are concerned, I think Swachh Bharat is a great scheme. An absolutely great scheme. I think, uh, um, you know, giving gas cylinders... Is a great scheme, but the point is when you give the first gas cylinder to a, to a marginalized family, you have to pay in installments. You don't have to pay the security deposit, but you have to pay back in installments. But the second gas cylinder, you have to pay the market price. 
So a marginalized family doesn't, doesn't have the money to pay them. To the, the, and the price of gas cylinders have gone up. So while the scheme is great, its implementation is an absolute disaster. So those are the three areas where there's been absolute policy failures. One of implementation and two of policy. And we'll come back to this theme of implementation of policy in uh, another context. Because in the end, you know, great ideas are worth absolutely nothing if they don't translate on the ground. But I also wanted to ask you to briefly touch upon, you write about how uh, the, democ you know, the, democracy, the democratic institutions of this country are being uh, endangered well, as well. And that, I know, that can take 45 minutes, but very briefly. Well, if, I'll, I'll tell you, you briefly know. now. See, everybody say that in India we need a strong leader. You know, we need, a, we need a, some macho guy, uh, Davy Crockett or Tarzan sort of uh, swinging around the jungle or whatever. And he can sort of... Uh, um, um, India is a strong, great country, which it is. The problem with such a strong leader is when you have a majority, uh, then he imposes upon the people of India his own ideas. Remember, you can't even do that in a family. In a family, if the father tries to impose his ideas on the rest of the family, there's going to be a problem, right? In a country where there are 1.3 billion people, you can't impose your ideas. And so somebody asked me the question, look, um, he's a strong leader, he'll take India forward. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at the history of India from 1993 onwards, what do you find? Most coalition governments have been great successes. The first coalition government was in 1991. And remember, the liberalization of the economy started in 1991 when Narsim Rao was in power whether it's open sky policy or it's liberalizing all the economy. But when you come to a strong leader, what does he do? He captures all institutions. You capture the CBI, you capture the ED, you capture the tax department, you capture the media, and there is no alternative discourse in the country. And we say that we have seen that happening. And then you can, once you have an army of people on the social media platforms and you have a deal with Facebook, if you have a see, all these digital digital platforms are after money. Remember, no digital platform is altruistic, that it wants to do good to India. You pay them money and they will put you on the front page. So you give them enough money every time you open. Every time you open the program, you will see only one face. Right? That's what, that's what strong leaders do to you. In other words, there's no space for anybody else. Right? You have um, a statue somewhere that you have built and only you will be seen walking around. And if you have the, the, you know, all that, all, so that's the strong leader for your country. So if you capture all institutions, where's the dissent? Where's the voice of the ordinary man? The ordinary man wants ordinary things. He wants clean drinking water, sanitation, children going to school. He wants health care. That's all that he wants. He doesn't care about all this. And everything is hype. Everything is, what's left? I mean, democracy is only vital when people are in conflict, then only democracy moves forward. Because India as a nation is a coalition. We're a coalition as a nation. I mean, I was in the education department, and if I prescribed a particular policy, it is not a one-size-fits-all policy. I can't implement it in Mizoram. I'll not be implementing the same policy in Uttarakhand. I won't be, be able to implement it in Maharashtra because the demographics are different. The challenges are different. The challenges in Bihar and West Bengal are different. In Hyderabad and Tamil Nadu are different. 
So in, in that sense, India being a coalition, what's going ha to happen if you want a unification of purpose, a unification of thought, a unification of ideas, and a unification in implementing those ideas? It will not go down well. And that's the problem in our country. I find that uh, point of view very, very refreshing, I have to say, because most people tend to think of coalitions as obstructive in, in terms of policy making, etc., etc. But I, I, I'm at least one of those people who agrees with you. But remember, on this, in uh, 1991, as I started, liberalization started. Then the, Even dream, the Vajpayee government. Yes, no, the dream budget was in 1997 in a minority government. Chidambaram's budget of 1997 was a dream budget. Pokhran too was in a minority government. The quadrilateral triangle in Vajpayee's was a minority government. The, 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 the dialogue with the U.S. started in a minority government. The opening up on the restructuring of the telecom sector was in a minority government. Right to education was in a minority government. Right to information was in a minority government. Uh, right to food security was in a minority government. And what did a majority government give you? It gave you demon demonetization, it gave you GST, and it gave you all these programs which are not implemented. That's the contrast. You know, Mr. Sibyl, one of uh, your uh, concerns in, uh, in when you've been speaking and even in the book that comes across very, very strongly is uh, the rise of communalism. And of course, rightly so. But I have a question which is, you know, the RSS in the end has been, is in, it's an organization that started in 1925 and despite several bans, it's only gotten stronger and stronger over time. Um, it's now branched out into many, many affiliates, into many walks of life. They, they, have, they run thousands of schools. They work amongst tribals. They run academic uh, institutions for aspiring um, army people, for uh, aspiring IAS candidates. Um, they, they run uh, probably the country's largest labor union, Kisan Union. You get my drift. And they've, they've only grown from strength to strength. And they obviously have a, an alternative idea of India, to sort of put it mildly. And their groundwork and their, uh, you know, sort of propagation of this idea of India has continued unabated, irrespective of the government that was in power. And of course, one can't deny that the Modi government coming to power will give it a boost. But in the end, the Modi government is also sort of standing on the shoulders of the work that the RSS has been doing. I just wonder if the Congress failed uh, to uh, see and counter uh, this work that was happening on the ground substantially way before, um, you know, even maybe 2002 or the Anna Hazare movement, let alone what happened in 2014? Well, you are absolutely right. I mean, I don't think the Congress has never been or seldom been a cadre-based party. I mean, the Congress movement itself was an umbrella movement. If you look at the movement prior to independence, it was really bringing everybody together under one umbrella and fighting against uh, a colonial power. Uh, so the genesis of the Congress is not based on a cadre-based party. So when it became a party, it had no cadre, in a sense. But because the, everybody in India had Congress's mind as an organization, everybody voted for the Congress party, not realizing that there was another movement out there, uh, which was cadre-based, which slowly grew in strength. And basically, um, and you can see this happening around the world, you can see it in the United States, all the ills, all the ills of the United States are attributed to immigrants. Uh, and therefore, the U.S. government has stopped functioning because he says, unless you build a wall on the Mexican border, I'll not allow the government to function. So if you start blaming uh, somebody else for your own 
failures, that's something that attracts people. And it's done it in Germany now. You're seeing it happening in Venezuela. You're having happening in the U.S. and other parts of the world. So I think that you are absolutely right. They've done enormous work, and I don't want to decry that work. But the problem is it's no longer a social organization. The RSS is no longer a social It's a political outfit because almost every minister in the government belongs to the RSS. Every governor in India belongs to the RSS. Almost every governor, not every governor. Every appointments to vice chancellors are made on the basis whether you're affiliated to the RSS or not. So basically, if, you, if the RSS starts controlling the centers of power, then the RSS is a political party in a sense. It's the RSS that is functioning and running this government, not, not the BJP, if you ask me, because in every department of the government of India, there is an RSS representative who is watching what is happening and making sure that the RSS ideology is being implemented. So I don't decry the social aspect of what the RSS does, but I certainly am against its political manifestation in the, in the sense that it starts controlling policy in government. So if I walk, when I used to be a minister, when somebody walked to my office, I never asked him the question, do you belong to BJP? Do you belong to Samajwadi Party? Do you belong to, you know, the Dalit? Nothing. Because as, as a public servant, I'm there to help people. I don't have to know which political affiliation they have. That's all changed. Now you go somewhere, they first find out, who do you, which, which ideology do you belong to? And if it's RSS, or if it's Pro A, pro B, I don't want to take names, then your work is done. Otherwise, uh, you know, uh, channels are not giving licenses. You can't even, uh, that's what's happening today. Telephone calls are made, don't do this for him, don't do that for him, otherwise we'll proceed against you. And if a business, the businessman doesn't listen, then the income tax department will send him a notice, or the ED will start investigating him. So if this is the ideology, it's very dangerous for India for, and the future of India. No, you're absolutely right. In fact, I'd go one step ahead and say that the social work and the political work uh, is deeply tied when it comes to the RSS and has been since Golwalkar had that right. first meeting with Jam Prashad Mukherjee That's right. uh, that led to the foundation of the BJS. But, you know, moving on from uh, uh, from the difference you stated between uh, the Congress not being a Kada-based party to uh, play the devil's advocate for a, for a minute... When we talk about the rise of communalism, I can't help but think that um, despite Nehru's misgivings, you know, and his sort of apprehensions, um, Congress might have done its bit in the past to nurture the Frankenstein of communalism. And when we talk even about, let's just take one example, which is the biggest fault line, perhaps one of the biggest fault lines in this country uh, at this point in time, which is Ayodhya. You know, one can't obviously... Uh, the ensued the dispute started in 1885 but if you look at it post-independence one cannot take away from um, advertently or otherwise the contribution of Congress politicians such as whether it's Ndi Tiwari, whether Thank it's uh, Veer Bahadur Singh, whether it's Arun Nehru, whether it's even Rajiv Gandhi or uh, G.B. Pant. And I don't want to, there are many such examples but I don't want to delve into the past. I want to talk about the future and I want to talk about the present. Congress government in Punjab passing a draconian anti-blasphemy law um, you know, a sort of uh, uh, alternative cow politics taking shape in Madhya Pradesh and Rahul Gandhi asserting his Hindu identity. Now, there are two ways to look at all of this. One is that to, de to defeat a greater evil, all is fair in war and politics. And another is that all of this collectively may be shifting the center more towards the right when it comes to communalism. How do you look at this? 
Why it's really a very tough question, quite frankly, because if you look at Punjab, all political parties in Punjab are on the same page. I mean, there is no actually conflict out there. And uh, what happens then in politics is that if you are not part of the mainstream, you lose out in terms of, in, in terms of your political future. So I think that politicians do look at that and in that sense sometimes make decisions which in, in the liberal framework are not necessarily uh, consistent with what liberals would think. So that's the answer to your question. Uh, I don't think that communalism is, uh, is, is, is something that can be um, attributed to one, one particular political party. I think that all political parties at some stage or the other uh, are, have been guilty uh, of communal um, um, uh, configuration. Uh, but I think that uh, it's not part of their ideology. The distinction is that there is one party where communalism is part of their ideology. For example, you have the Citizenship Act where you exclude people completely. That's, that's ideological communalism. But then, yes, there is sporadic decisions which are taken which are communal in nature and which no liberal right-thinking person should support, and I don't support it. You know, you, you uh, in the Rajya Sabha, moving on to policy from politics, you, in the Rajya Sabha, you gave um, a very, um, an excellent speech, to my opinion, when the 10% uh, reservation bill was being debated. And you criticized it, as far as I remember, on four counts. One was that it wasn't solidly backed by data. It was ill thought out and it hadn't been debated enough. Two was, um, you know, whether or not it you know, in, in terms of the Constitution, how well it complemented the values of the Constitution. Uh, number three, I think, was implementability, which was, I think yeah. is a big, big, big issue. And, of course, fourth was political expediency, you know. Yeah. Uh, could you quickly, again, it was a wonderful speech. It's on YouTube. I recommend that everybody go home and watch it. But quick, could you quickly Well, you know, just very quickly, for example, you say that for, for getting 10% reservation, the limit, income limit is 8 lakhs. Now, the fact of the matter is that, uh, that, the, that uh, the income tax, very few people file income tax returns. I mean, uh, Jaitley said 3.17 crore people file income tax returns. That's now uh, come to about 6 crores. But most of the people who file income tax returns are salaried people. Uh, and the rest are very rich. And very few people file income which is uh, more than 8 lakhs. So the result is, how do you find out then what the income of a household is to give him the benefit? Because if you go to rural, rural areas, people don't file income tax returns. So what's going to happen is people are going to give fake certificates of income and get the benefit of the 10% reservation. And if your income tax limit is 2.5 lakhs, then why do you make 8 lakhs to be the limit for the 10% reservation? It doesn't make sense. So, uh, and then, of course, it's all politics, as you know, because there is the Patidar movement out there in Gujarat, and there is the other movement in Maharashtra. So people say that they are just trying to please those sections of society till they come back to them. So it's, it's all. See, the problem is, if you announce things like this three months, four months before the election and shove it down people's throat, all you are doing is making people of India more cynical, People in the audience will say, what is this happening in this country? What, why didn't you think about it five years ago when you came to power? And so people then start losing confidence in the system. And that's the most dangerous thing. When the ordinary man on the street thinks that this government or any government, 
हमारे लिए कुछ नहीं होगा कोई भी आ जाए दैट्स सिनेसिज्म दैट्स अ फीलिंग ऑफ डिसल्यूजनमेंट विद द सिस्टम एंड दैट्स द बिगिनिंग ऑफ द डिस्ट्रक्शन ऑफ व्हाट वी हैव बिल्ट ओवर द लास्ट 70 इयर्स and of course the fact that it didn't go to standing committees i mean that also goes yeah. to your point of the way in which institutions are being uh, you know weakened and we're going to come back to this uh, point of disillusionment with democracy in a moment but i have an additional question to the 10% reservation bill you made such an impassioned speech and uh, absolutely amazing points in that speech however the congress did support the bill um, now here's my question one of the things that you said during the speech was that uh, the founding mothers and fathers of our constitution gave a big responsibility to parliamentarians yeah. to not think simply of short term loss and gain when it comes to something as serious as amending the constitution i mean and i said i said one, i said yes. in the speech ke hum yahan baithe hain aur aur debate kar rahe hain aur satta paksh ke log soch rahe hain ke is bill ke dwara unko kaisa fayda hoga और यहाँ हम सोच रहे हैं कि अगर हम इस बिल के खिलाफ वोट करेंगे तो हमें कितना नुकसान पार्लियामेंट में इसी सोच के साथ हम वोट करने लगे तो आर फाउंडिंग फादर्स डिड नॉट वॉन्ट अस टू डू दिस इन पार्लियामेंट इट्स राधर नॉट बी इन पार्लियामेंट देन स्टैंड अप एंड थिंक अबाउट वॉट्स गोइंग टू हैपन इन दिन द नेक्स्ट इलेक्शन आई थिंक इफ यू डू दैट आई थिंक द इंस्टीट्यूशन इज बींग डिवेल्यूड एंड आई थिंक वी आर रिस्पॉन्सिबल फॉर दैट you know um you okay well there's one more thing that you've been speaking about recently and it links up to your point with uh disillusionment with democracy and that's evms um there was recently a pe- press conference but uh not getting into the merit or demerit of that pe- press conference i don't know if you still agree with it but you've also written about it in your book and you're not the only one questions about uh, whether evms are functioning or not functioning properly are being raised every single time there's an election and the debate has sort of been reduced to well if you win then you don't complain if you lose you complain and so on and so forth but this is such a larger issue because it it links up to whether eventually people believe in democracy at all or not what are your views on that well okay i have a, a conceptually um i have a different view on evms altogether and really most of europe and it's part of the german constitution also see uh, there are two sides to a vote each of you when you go to vote and there's a machine out there you press the button and you know who you are voting for you vote against the symbol that you see whether it's lotus or anybody else okay so you know who you voted for and then when it comes to counting the vote you don't know that the vote that you gave really went to the person you voted for because the second aspect of the vote is non transparent ki aapne vote to kar liya us party ke liye jab wo count ho raha hai to kiski taraf gaya that the machine does for you so you don't know so under the german constitution they say that both aspects of voting should be transparent you must know who you voted for and you must know that when you when you voted and you voted for the person you voted for it was counted towards him that can only happen that can only happen on a ballot that cannot happen in a machine which is why america doesn't use machines which is why europe doesn't use machines which is why japan doesn't use machines and china is a machine in itself 
That might be the quote of the day. Uh, moving on to, uh, you mentioned dissent, and, I, and you uh, recently also tweeted about, um, you know, the misuse of sedition law by this government. Now, one of my favorite politicians said that when lawyers are lawyers, they're very passionate about the law, and when they become politicians, they become passionate about ignoring the law. You might know who I'm referring to at this point in time. I wonder, in case you, you haven't seen the speech, it was him. Um, but, uh, you know, I wonder, when you were in power, you were also the law minister, uh, laws such as sedition, uh, uh, the sedition law, which have been outlawed in many different countries, criminal defamation, the FCRA, was it very difficult to see that in the hands of a majoritarian government, uh, they might be severely misused? Not to say that they weren't misused, they may have been misused during the UPA as well, but... They could be severely misused in, in the hands of a majoritarian government. But that's the result of a strong leader. Because the point is, these laws were there and they've been there for a long time. But how many times has 124A of the IPC ever been used? That's the sedition law. Can you think of any real example that sedition has been used against a citizen of this country? I can't think of any real example. It's only in the last five years, which is why I stood up for, for Hardik Patel in the Supreme Court. I stood up for Kanaya. Uh, in the high court. I stood up for all those people. And you put some post on the Facebook and then you'll be foisted with sedition. Now, this is a colonial law. It's a colonial hangover. And remember, in, in the UK, sedition law has been uh, erased from the law books. In the United States, the test of sedition is if you are, if you are in a position or if you, if you excite armed rebellion to overthrow the country. A poor citizen or a poor girl or a poor young man who puts a tweet uh, or has something on the Facebook has no power to overthrow this mighty state. The state is too powerful. Nobody can overthrow it. Sedition is only used when you over attempt to overthrow through a conspiracy and armed rebellion to overthrow the, 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 the establishment. That cannot happen. So I think this is, I mean, I think I've told the Congress party, one of the things we must do in our manifesto is eliminate criminal law. 124 must be eliminated. But I'm really glad lessons have been learned. Uh, you know, one of the things that has been uh, a talking point in the country, uh, uh, and you've also been deeply concerned about it, is, of course, the way in which institutions are being compromised. But, you know, I was really, I, I, I mean, I wonder, it's, is it, is it just, a, when one thinks back to the UPA, when one thinks back to the 2G scam, for example, in which at least for this moment you've been your government and you've been vindicated, uh, I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is from memory, I remember you talking about how the CAG at that point in time had overstepped its uh, uh, sort of role. In, in the way that it handled the two It's overstepping his role in BCCI now. At, at this point in time, of yeah. course. But, you know, so there's a case to be made that institutions were already not competent during... Uh, they had these chinks in the armor that could, you know, be further sort of exploited by this government or any other government. No, it's the, not. I, th I think, let me, yeah. Pragya, let me just answer this. And I think people should know about this. We talk about the 2G and we talk... Let's talk about the coal scam first. Yeah. I mean, I think people should know what really has happened. See, supposing somebody has a power plant in Chhattisgarh or a power plant in Jharkhand. Now, to set up a power plant, you have to invest something like 10,000 crores, 15,000 crores for a reasonably sized megawatt power plant. And at that point in time, power plants were set up only if you had a captive coal mine. 
So the chief minister of the state would recommend that, look, I want a power plant here, so I want to give a captive coal mine to this guy. He's going to set up the power plant. You allocate the captive coal mine so he can use it for his power plant. So come uh, the Supreme Court then cancels all the captive coal mines, all mines that were allotted from 1993. 1993 were all cancelled. So if we had that power plant in Jharkhand or in Chhattisgarh, and the coal mine was lost, where will he get the coal from to, to run the power plant? Coal India doesn't have enough production to give him that coal. He's in the hinterland. If he imports the coal, it's at a much higher price. He cannot pay back his loans. And the, result, the, the NPAs today are the result of those decisions of the Supreme Court of India. That you cancelled all the power plants from 1993, Nobody was left with coal. The economics of the entire power sector changed, and you couldn't get coal except through import. The import of coal was very high. Your profit was less. You couldn't pay back the loans, and we are in the position where you have NPAs over 10,000 crores. Now, not only that, nobody was then willing to invest in the power sector, invest in the coal sector. Today, therefore, there are power plants which are built but which are starved of coal, and they don't have any coal to run the power plant. That's the, that's the result of Mr. Vinod uh, Rai's decision to saying 1,85,000 crores. Now, the, as far as the telecom sector is concerned, the telecom sector was healthy at that point in time. There were several players in the telecom sector. You had Telenor, you had Etisilat, you had... Now, all, everybody has shut down. There's nobody around. Vodafone is merging with Idea. Reliance has gone. Telenor has gone. So you're left with Geo, you're left with Vodafone, with Idea, and you're left with Airtel. Now, Airtel and Vodafone are not making a profit. For every rupee they spend, they earn, they, they have to spend 1.25. So the sector which was healthy, the sector that was earning profit, the sector that was spreading telephony, now is under a debt of 5 lakh crores because of dear Vinod Rai and his 2G scam and his numbers of 1,76,000 crores. That's what's happened. That's the reality. You ask anybody. Nobody is willing to invest in India anymore in the telecom and in the power sector and in the coal sector. And, and now all these power plants are under NPA and nobody is willing to buy them. And uh, somebody, the matter is pending in Supreme Court. The, the, the banks are willing to give a haircut of 70% to get rid of the NPAs. And there's no buyer for it. So... This is the problem. When you start listening, if the court within, within its precincts starts listening to voices outside and listening to the mobs outside and listening to the channels outside and getting swayed like a tsunami along with the channels, then this will be the result. The economic results are disastrous. And I think people should realize, see, you cannot take a decision, especially for the country, unless you do enough research. You have to discuss with every stakeholder before you take a decision. If you make an announcement like demonetization without research or GST without research or do these things like 1,76,000 crores without research. Supreme Court said it was a scam. 2G was a scam. And they said people should be prosecuted. The trial court, that is the special court, said there is no evidence of a scam. So imagine the Supreme Court should be deeply embarrassed that what they said was a scam. The special judge says there was none. Now, this is really very, very serious.
Therefore, courts should not be delving into highly complex economic issues. You know, uh, I was going to, I, I wish we had the time to ask you, I wanted to ask you about what could be done, because the whole idea of democratic institutions is that they should be immune to, they're, they're designed, by design they should be immune to, because, well, every once in a while in the life of democracy, you're going to have a majoritarian government, you're going to have a government that's tempted to exploit um, uh, and, and compromise these institutions, but I don't think we have time to get into it. Also, because you've preempted my next question, which is on the judiciary. And uh, you led the charge when it came to the impeachment of the Chief Justice of India, and you did, you did so following a press conference by the judges um, themselves, by judges themselves, and you sent out a very strong message by doing that, irrespective of the outcome of that. Leaving that be, what might be some of the reforms that you'd like to, you spoke a little bit right now about things that the Supreme Court needs to sort of rethink. What might be some of the reforms or uh, whether just the way in functioning in the structure that you think are really imminent so that the judiciary can function properly? I think the biggest mistake we made, and I and Fali Nariman made, was to argue the 1993 decision uh, and, and said that the power uh, of appointment of judges should be taken away from the executive and handed over to the judiciary. I think this was the biggest mistake that at least I made. Uh, it's, in fact, the situation is very, very bad. In fact, what's happening today is because judges have the power of appointment, the, they, are, they are in the process delegitimizing their own uh, institution because lots of controversies have arisen around the appointments of these judges, and I don't want to talk about recent controversies. So the moment you start picking up people and the institution itself picks it up, you have a problem because there are lots of people who will not agree with it. So never put yourself at center stage of controversy, especially an institution as important as the Supreme Court of India. It should never be the appointing authority of its own people. And if you see what happens is, you see, look, everybody in this country or every human being has feet of clay. You know, I'm, not, I'm not as white as snow. Nobody's sitting here is as white as snow. Let's be clear on it. Right? We are all human beings. We have our failings. Uh, we have our idiosyncrasies. We have our friends. We have our enemies. We have our likes. We have dislikes. So, so also in the judiciary, anybody sitting there as a judge will have his likes in the hierarchy of judges down there, and somebody will dislike him as well. So you then in that process become a part of the controversy, which the Supreme Court should never be part of. That's an institutional flaw that we need to address as a nation. And, and I think we, and then this power of transfer. This morning I read the headline news in Indian Express that a very fine judge, one of the finest judges that I know of in this country, is a young is a judge in Delhi High Court, who has been, um, you know, rendering judgments uh, for the uh, for the citizen, and 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 some not to the liking of the government. And I and and he was thought to be transferred out of Delhi. This power of transfer is then being used by the court and the, and, and, and the government to, to, to uh, move out uh, judges from one court to another by way of punishment. Now, this is unacceptable. Judges not be subject to transfer in this fashion. This, this should never be done. I mean, if the judiciary itself at any stage seems to be, even seems to be compromised, that's the death knell of democracy in India. The judiciary must be above board, and we must protect it with all our might. 
And seem to be above board, not Absolutely. just be above Absolutely. board. Absolutely. One last question about politics. Uh, road to 2019, I will not be forgiven if I don't ask you this. What do you see as uh, the biggest strengths and weaknesses of Congress going ahead? And amongst those strengths and weaknesses, where does the perception battle fit in, number one? And where do Rahul Gandhi and Priyanka Gandhi fit in? Well, I think that the battle is tough. I don't think the battle is easy. Uh, we have only 44, now a little more, after we won some by-elections, seats in Parliament. Uh, from there to reach a figure uh, which is um, substantial is not easy. Uh, uh, and, and, and the adversity is very, very tough in every sense of the word. Um, and uh, Maap, Dhand, whatever, whatever, he's, he's going to use everything in his armor uh, to... to, to, to deal with us. So it's not easy. Uh, what is easy is the fact that people have, have realized who he is. You know, the, as the Mukhota is off, the Asli Chera is before us, and is before the people of this country. So that's the plus, that people anywhere, because of demonetization and other policy decisions, our Kisans are unhappy, our, our Vyapari is unhappy, the industry, industry is unhappy, government servants are unhappy, bureaucracy is unhappy. Uh, there's hardly anybody who's happy other than the RSS. Uh, and, 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 and I'm not sure the RSS is entirely <laughs> happy either, so there you have it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. outside of the negative message, So therefore, that's... that's, that's yeah, yeah. Now, 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 I think that what we need is coalitions, state-wise coalitions. We need a coalition in Uttar Pradesh, we need a coalition in Bihar, uh, and, and uh, some of the other states. But where it's a one-to-one -one with BJP and Congress, we'll fight it like that. So as long as we can get those coalitions in place, I think we have a, we have a fight out there. But it's not easy. And what about when it comes to perception? What about, a, I mean, well, there is a negative messaging and it's going out uh, about how badly the Modi government has performed on its promises. But do you think that's sufficient or do you think the Congress will also need to be able to convince the young voter in this country absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that there's something more that they have to offer other uh, than, oh, absolutely. well, just we'll absolutely. be better than them? Absolutely. I think our manifesto is going to be a radical manifesto. It will give a new vision to this country and I hope, I hope people read it, young people read it in particular, uh, and, and then make up their minds. I look yes. forward to it. But a final question on this. Uh, Rahul Gandhi, do you think the party has come around to his leadership? Do you think he I has think settled so. into his role? Without any doubt. And I think this is a good time for Priyanka Gandhi to be brought The party has rallied around him. There's no doubt about it. And now it's time for the nation to do so. Uh, well, we'll see what happens in, in uh, very soon. But before we move on, I don't want to end it on a note of politics. I want to ask you this. You speak eloquently. You're a lawyer. You write briefs. You make wonderful arguments. And you write wonderful prose. What is it that attracts you towards poetry? What does that medium afford you that prose doesn't? You see, I think that in every human being, there is uh, a poet in him or her. Uh, it's not necessary that it, all, that, that it emerges. But every human being has a soft side to him. Uh, all of us do. And I think if you reflect, if you sit back and reflect, you'll find that soft side. Somebody can articulate it better than others, but there's always that soft side. So I've been wanting to articulate it over the years. You were talking about, you know, um, let's not talk of the past. So I just had wrote a poem the other day on what not talking about the past. And I said, Chal chod baate tu kal ki, mat pooch kis ki thi galti. 
चल छोड़ बातें तू कल की मत पूछ किसकी थी गलती इसमें मिलेगा ना कुछ भी हर कदम पे किस्मत बदलती हर कदम पे किस्मत बदलती तो हर कदम कदम के किस्मत बदल जाती है सो लेट्स नॉट थिंक ऑफ द पास्ट एंड ब्लेम अदर्स कि तुमने सत्तर साल में क्या किया ऐसे बर्बाद कर दिया लेट्स थिंक ऑफ टुमोरो बिकॉज द पोअर मैन आउट देयर द वुमन आउट देयर द जुगी झोपड़ी फलो आउट देयर ही गेट्स अप इन द मॉर्निंग एंड ही डो वॉट्स गोन हैपन इन द इवनिंग think of his evening and think of his tomorrow instead of yesterday wonderful though the past is and one for modi us. one for modi if i may say so of course and i'm i'm going to make bande. you recite one here so okay khuda ke bande sambhal ja waqt hai ab bhi badal ja khuda ke bande sambhal ja waqt hai ab bhi badal ja mat kar ek dooje pe hamla kuch hi dino ka hai jumla मत कर एक दूजे पे हमला कुछ ही दिनों का है जुमला शहन की आदत भुला के नफरत के बीच दफना के इंसान बन के दिखा दे this is in english shades of truth there hangs a tale of promises made and dreams for sale will breach the heights we fail to climb the showman's act a pantomime data is oft molded to form no jobs the young now feel forlorn safe havens are for those who kill the victim just don't fit the bill a widow's wail is all in vain the girl child dead now feels no pain don't kill brothers to save a cow their blood will stain the land we plow in silence all our masters watch gloat take pride in victories notched caged parrots are the new thrushuls the long arms of the of the czars who rule dictators at will had frozen lives millions struggling just to survive deals off the shelf have caused a stir transparency is now a blur our steady pace of growth has stalled what we had built defaced and mauled speak out aloud time will not wait let not the hounds decide our fate in troubled times together stand do not think twice extend your hand dere dere na thank you for listening to jepper bets a podcast produced by Lonchora in association with the Siege Upper Literature Festival. Ah!